morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt, the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship. We're glad you're with us for this last installment in our series this Christmas about the foolishness of Christmas. And by foolishness, I hope you put that in quotes because uh, it is crazy for us to think that we could ever come up with a better idea than what God has. But the Bible tells us that many times the, thing, the, the things that we think God is doing poorly or wrongly, he's got a master plan that's wiser than we could ever imagine. And so today I want to talk about the fourth installment, the foolishness of God becoming a baby. I mean, if you're going to rescue the world, why would you send a baby? If you're only going to send one person in the world, why wouldn't you send Superman? Why wouldn't you at least send a green beret? A baby? And today we're going to talk about that. Why was that important for God to do that? And then not only that, but if you're familiar with the story at all, this wasn't a baby just even born in a hospital. This is a baby born in a barn. What? And the whole thing sounds crazy if you've never heard the story before. And to many people in Paul's day, in the days of Peter and Paul, when they went and shared this, people laughed at them. They literally did. And there are still people today that laugh at the good news of the gospel. Today, uh, as we unpack it, I think you'll see why it's nothing to laugh about. It's something to celebrate. So I want to welcome all the folks who are worshiping with us via video at Pike Road and Cloverdale, Wetumpka, other places as well. And we're a few days from Christmas, and this is important for us to talk about. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I want to thank you that uh, our wisest thoughts are nothing compared to the most foolish thought you could ever think. You are that wise. And so, Lord, um, your foolishness is much wiser than our wisdom. And today we come to you for wisdom. Please help us understand some of the things you were doing when you sent your son into the world and why you did him that way. We want to make application to our lives. We want to grow closer to you in the process. And so, Lord, I thank you for the day. I pray that you'll speak and move me out of the way and remind us again of why you came into the world as a little baby. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Hey, if you need a pen, uh, just raise your hand. If you didn't grab it on the way in, you want to take some notes on this. Point one, jumping right in, it was not foolish that Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ, was born in the little town of Bethlehem. If you've ever sung the Christmas carol, the little town of Bethlehem, you sang the right tune, or the right words. It was a little town. It was not a big metropolitan center. If you're going to send the Son of God, the creator of the universe, if God is going to put skin on and come into our world, why in the world would you go to Bethlehem? And that's the question on the floor this morning. Because Jesus was prophesied to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one uh, whom the Jews considered a king that would come like David, who'd be a mighty conqueror. David was the one who killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. David was the king who was a man after God's own heart. And now you're going to send your son into the world and you're going to have him show up in a backwater town like Bethlehem? Well, that's what the Bible presents. In fact, here's how it goes in Luke chapter 2. At the time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, Caesar Augustus, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, They lived in a time when the governments did censuses so they could collect more taxes. Can you believe there was a time when governments wanted... Anyway, anyway, just there it is. Okay, this was the first sentence taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, if you're not familiar with the geography of Israel, Galilee is in the northern part of Israel, and Nazareth is up there. Um, Bethlehem is down the south-central part, not far from Jerusalem, but it would have been a travel, especially on foot. It would have been a big journey, and especially with a pregnant uh, fiancé. Because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home, 
traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who is now obviously pregnant. It's important to note that 700 years earlier, the Old Testament prophet Micah had predicted that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Here's what he wrote. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. I mean, Bethlehem was just a little town that was even prophesied long in advance that this would be a little town. The greatest claim to fame was that, you know, this is where King David had been born. This was his hometown. But, you know, you can claim that for a lot of towns. In fact, every little town does this. You know, it's like, well, this is, you know, like there's a town not far from me and where, or from where I grew up in Kansas, Abilene, Kansas, where President Dwight D. Eisenhower was born. And you can go to the museum, and now I know all of you will make travel plans there next year. No, I mean, you know, okay, well, it's nice to know, but that's not earth-shaking news that a president had once lived there. Okay, well, it's the same way. There were people that knew that King David was from Bethlehem, but it wasn't a big uh, center of commerce or government or anything. The capital, the center of worship, the center of government, the center of commerce for the whole nation was a few miles away in Jerusalem. I mean, if you're going to send your son, the son of God, in the flesh... Why wouldn't you go there? Or if you wanted to reach the Roman Empire was in charge of the world, why wouldn't, have you, why wouldn't you have gone to Rome? I mean, why Bethlehem? Well, the prophets had said this is where the Messiah would be born. In fact, when the wise men ended up coming a little while later, and they stopped in Jerusalem and said, we've seen a star, where is the king of the Jews? Where is he? King Herod didn't know anything about all this. He went and found some priests, and he said, and what, is, what do you know about prophecy here? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, well, in Bethlehem. They read him that same passage, Micah 5, 2. So it was one of the ways you would know the Messiah when he arrived. And so it was terribly important that Jesus was born there. And because of the census, that's exactly what happened. Now here are a couple of things I want to point out real quickly. First of all, there's two life applications I want us to get out of this, right out of the gate here. First of all, God loves to use things that the world considers foolish or insignificant to carry out his plans. We've hit this, if you've been with us through this whole series, this has been the paragraph that we've used to be our lens for Christmas this year. Because it seems foolish, last week we talked about how foolish it would be to, to use shepherds to announce the news. I mean, they weren't well connected socially. Or to use Mary and Joseph. Mary was a young girl and Joseph was just a carpenter. I mean, nobody special. But over and over again in Scripture we're reminded that God loves to show how gracious and kind he is and how much is, how great love, uh, great a love he has for all of us by using ordinary people. Listen to it again from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> this foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, a few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. I mean, the good news of Christ is this. That we're a bunch of sinners. God sent his son into the world to rescue us from sin and death. And he went about it in such a way so that nobody could ever think that he came only for the most beautiful or the most talented or the most politically connected, for the wealthy. It wasn't anything like that. He came into the world and he used ordinary people and he even carried this all out in a little town like Bethlehem or Prattville. 
I mean, that would be amazing if the Son of God had been born in Prattville. I mean, it is the preferred community, and I understand that, but, but still, this is amazing. But from the get-go, God wants to remind us this is about grace. Grace is undeserved kindness. Grace is undeserved kindness. Would you say that with me, please? Undeserved kindness. And so why would God choose a little town like Bethlehem? They didn't deserve it. That's the point. Why would Jesus die on the cross for me? I don't deserve it. That's the point. Why would God use ordinary people to carry out his message? We don't deserve it. That's the point. Grace is undeserved kindness. Every single part of the gospel, even the way Jesus came into the world, is just dripping with grace. Here's another life application. We must trust God even when we don't understand his timing or his ways. I have discovered something in my life that when I pray about things and they are very urgent to me, that God has a different sense of timing than I do on most things that are urgent. Has anybody else discovered this? Yeah, you pray about something, God, i got to have this happen. God, i got to have this happen. God, i got to have this happen. And the Lord goes, okay, in about three years you will. <laughs> Lord, I can't wait for that. I uh, uh, dated a girl in college that I was madly in love with until she fell in love with another guy, and that kind of ruined our relationship. But anyway, um, <laughs> I prayed after that, oh, Lord, please bring me to the right gal. I want a Christian gal I can love. I want a gal to love me and... Uh, I can share my life with. I really want this. And I prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. Well, um, I graduated from college. And I remember my grandmother, who was in her early 90s at the time when I graduated from college, uh, she was, when you get to 90, you're just talking straight. There are no filters anymore. I'm just getting it out there, okay? (laughs) And uh, so grandma's at my graduation. And she goes, well, congratulations, John. Uh, let's see. I went to Kansas State. You know, there were more than 20,000 students there. She's, how many students are here? I said, like 20,000. She said, how many girls? And I said, oh, 11, 12,000. I think actually there were more girls than guys. And she goes, huh, and you couldn't even find one. <laughs> how are you going to find one now? Well, thanks, Grandma. Never come to another event for me again. Okay, no. Uh, you know, but it was those deals. I was going, oh, how will this work? And I'd been praying about it. Well, I got out of college, interviewed, took a job with a company that brought me down to Montgomery, Alabama, and here's where I met that gal. That beautiful redhead I married was here. God was answering my prayers all along. Grandma didn't know beans about it, okay? But the Lord did. The Lord did. Now, what if he has plans for you in 2016 that you don't know about? What if he does? What have you been praying about something since 2011 or 2010 and it still hasn't happened yet? But what if it's going to happen in the first two weeks of 2016? Would that be okay with you? If God had a better plan than you'd ever dreamed of? Well, if you start thinking like that, welcome to the birth of Jesus. People have been waiting for hundreds of years. And listen to this verse, Galatians 4.4. Paul reflects on this. When the fullness of time came, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. That means just at the right time. Do you know there are some things in my life... By the way, I discovered that that perfect woman I had been waiting for, if God had not used those years, those intervening years, to mature me and change me, I don't know if she would have had anything to do with me. God humbled me and broke me in a number of important ways, and that's why I'm such a great guy now. No, uh, you know, <laughs> look, 
I'm telling you, if he had not rubbed off a lot of those rough edges, I don't think she would have given me the time of day. Thank God he waited. Thank God. God has perfect timing for you. Will you trust him? Will I? Isaiah 55, 8, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything that you could imagine. How many of you here believe that God is smarter than you are? I hope you do. That's why we pray to him. He can see things we can't see. He can understand things we'll never grasp. And if he tried to explain to you his timing and his ways, if he tried to explain to me, I wouldn't get it anyway. Running the entire universe is difficult. And coordinating answers to prayers for billions of people simultaneously is what God is up to. And he's doing it. And that brings us to the last reference here, Psalm 32, 8 and 9, the last reference on this page. The Lord says, I'll guide you along the best pathway for your life. I'll advise you and watch over you. Do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. I read that verse. I had somebody come to me. The last time I read this was about six months ago. And they said, you've used that verse before. I go, I read it about every six months. Why? And I go, because most of us act like senseless horses and mules that need a bit and bridle to keep us under control. I mean, we can say, oh, I believe God's smarter than me. But then, man, we're angry when he doesn't do things our way. I believe God has a master plan and his timing is perfect. But I'm going to bellyache about it the whole time while I'm waiting. I hope I'm not just talking to myself here. Everybody's just, the, for you watching the video, everybody's just staring at me here, okay? I want you to understand, this is what the Bible says. The God we worship is real. He had a plan for, to send Jesus into the world where the message, the birth of Christ, would be just dripping with grace. So nobody could miss that. And the prophecy was going to be fulfilled, not because Joseph and Mary had looked up and said, well, where's the baby going to be born? Oh, it says here, Mary, we've got to go to Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2. That's not what happened at all. I mean, they ended up going to Bethlehem because there was a census taken in the Roman Empire, and it got them there. And because they were there at that time, the angels appeared to those shepherds, the shepherds that had been prepared according to God's plan from eternity past. And all this happened right there where Zechariah and Elizabeth, Mary's relatives, lived close to Jerusalem, and she would have been able to talk to them. Boom, boom, boom. All these things were lining up perfectly. How so? Because God lined them up. What if he has plans for you and me this next year? Would you and I be willing to pray again with hope again and say, God, you can do amazing things beyond my understanding, beyond the scope of my reason, and I'm going to trust you? I'm going to trust you're going to answer those prayers, not because I deserve them, but because you're just dripping with grace. Undeserved kindness. That's what grace is. So it wasn't foolish that God sent Jesus to Bethlehem. That's point one. Point two, it wasn't foolish that God came into our world as a baby. Now we're back to where we opened up. Well, why would you send a baby instead of Superman? He wasn't going to send someone who would be bulletproof and able to leap a tall building in a single bound, stronger than a locomotive. I mean, that would stop criminals from robbing a bank. But if you're going to deal with the sin problem, you need a different kind of savior here. And that's why Jesus came, to deal with our sin problem. I mean, we have a sin problem. We're a bunch of sinners, filthy, rotten sinners. And anytime anybody tells you, I can't go to church, I'm a filthy, rotten sinner, it's like, good, you'll fit right in. Place is stacked full of them. We're all a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners. 
And the only way our sin can ever be forgiven is through Jesus. And let me remind us of why this was important. So point two, it wasn't foolish that God came into our world as a baby. In Luke 2, 6, we keep reading there in the story, they went to Bethlehem. And while they were there, because of the census, the time came for Mary's baby to be born. And she gave birth to her first child, a son, a baby. Now reflect on this a little bit. The creator of the universe who created everything became human, and not just human, a baby. The one who is limitless fit in a crib. The one who has all power was now helpless, depending on a young girl, Mary, to take care of him. I mean, you could, you could just meditate on that forever. So the word became human, John 1.14, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Another prophecy was fulfilled by that. Isaiah 7.14, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And people have been speculating over that for hundreds of years too, going, what does that mean, God is with us? How does that work? We put it together with Micah 5 too. This is someone whose origins are from the ancient past. I mean, the Bible tells us that God exists as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Always has, always will. So it was never a time when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit didn't exist. There was a time that existed in history before he became human. And so when this happens, we see God himself arriving in human form. And the disciples pondered on this, marveled on this forever, that when John was writing about this, we've seen him. He was full of glory. We touched him. The creator God of the universe actually came and lived among us. He ate our food and drank our water and spoke our language. And John and the other disciples said, and what we heard from him, we pass on to you. This is amazing. God became tangible. We touched him. You could ask him a question and get an answer out loud in your own language, right then and there. The impossible happened. God became one of us, fully God and fully human at the same time. Now this is important because that means that Jesus is the only mediator who can reconcile us with God. As I said, we're a bunch of sinners. We're sinful people. God is holy. Well, how do you bring the two together? Filthy, rotten sinners, holy God. Rebels, holy father of love. How do we do it? I don't know. I can't do it for you. You can't do it for me because we're all a bunch of sinners. But what if someone came into our world who, was, who never sinned? I mean, he was just like us. He was fully human, but he was just like God because he was fully God. Well, that person could stand in the middle. He could bridge the gap. He could be the mediator. And this is what Paul told Timothy. He said, for there's only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. That's what Jesus came to do, to be the mediator, the one in the middle. That's what mediator means, the middle guy. He could talk to us because he's one of us. He could talk to God because he's God. And he can bring the two sides together. How? Well, the writer of Hebrews speculates on this. He says and meditates on this is better. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood. 
the Son also became flesh and blood, for only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. It was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sin of the people. The high priest was a person selected by God, Moses, originally, to be the one to whom God spoke, and then he would share the commandments of God with the sinful people. The sinful people would say, oh, Moses, represent us, pray for us. And so Moses would go and offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices, over and over again, he and his brother Aaron, and they would offer these sacrifices on behalf of the people. So Moses and Aaron were the intermediaries. Before Moses died, he said, one day a prophet like me is going to come, and he's going to set everything right permanently. And people had always waited for the prophet. And then they waited for Emmanuel, God with us, even though nobody was quite sure what that meant. And this child would be born in Bethlehem. And all that was fulfilled in Jesus. He's one of us. He loves us. But he never sinned. So he can die and pay the penalty. I can't die for your, your sins. You can't die for mine because we're, we're both sinners. But what if somebody was born into the human race who never sinned? And what if that person died for all of us? Then that would be an acceptable sacrifice. And the Bible says that's Jesus. And God knew none of us could ever do it, so he sent his only son to be here, to be that intermediary, to be that mediator, and his name is Jesus. And that brings us to a life application. You and I need to confess our sins and surrender our lives to Jesus. This is why uh, you will hear appeals all the time. Come to Jesus. Confess your sins no matter who you are. Confess them to Christ. Why does it have to be to Christ? Isn't it kind of narrow-minded? Aren't there lots of ways to God? No, there's only one. There's only one mediator. His name is Jesus. There's only one person who's been fully God and fully man at the same time, Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what he came into the world to do. That's why the angels sang. And that's why we celebrate his birth every Christmas. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And please underline one and only. There's... One and only was Jesus, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Notice it doesn't say, as long as you believe in whatever you want to believe and you're sincere about it. Why isn't that okay? What if they're sincere in their faith? Somebody doesn't believe in Jesus. Well, people can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Or we can be sincere and believe in the truth. And this is why it's so important to proclaim the good news of Christ. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it matters. And at Christmas, it's abundantly clear as to why. One mediator, and his name is Jesus. So it wasn't foolish that God came into our world as a baby. Because then he could experience life exactly as we do and and face all the temptations yet not sin and become this perfect sacrifice. That brings us to point three. It wasn't foolish that Jesus was born in a barn. It wasn't foolish he was born in Bethlehem, dripping with grace, the place where God had foretold this would happen, even though it was a small town. It's not foolish he was a baby. He had to become a baby. He had to become one of us so he could die. 
Thirdly, it wasn't foolish that he was born in a barn. Luke 2.7 tells us that when Joseph and Mary arrived in Bethlehem, nobody gave him a place to stay, apparently, except for a stable or a barn of some kind. Because when the baby was born, Mary wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. That's a hay trough. Because there was no lodging available for them. Now, you don't have to be looking too hard to read between the lines here. Joseph had to go back to Bethlehem because that was the hometown of his ancestry. It would have also been the hometown of his father, his brothers, his uncles, his cousins, his second cousins, everybody who knew. And they would have all had to go too. So where were they? Why were Joseph and Mary alone in a barn? Well, last week we talked about or two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that when a young girl was found expecting before someone was married, they were often ostracized from their families. And apparently that was going on here. All those families would have had to come back to Bethlehem. I doubt they were all staying in barns. And yeah, we sing these songs about how the hay was sweet smelling and the cattle were lowing and it's really kind of a neat place to live. Okay, but this was a barn. And if you go to a barn at night, you don't smell the sweet-smelling hay only, okay? There's lots of other smells. This was a dark and dirty place because Jesus came to save a dark and dirty world. Don't miss this again. Wait, okay, so you're going to send your son, Lord, into this world. Yep. What are you going to do in Jerusalem? No, Bethlehem. They don't deserve it. That's the point. Well, at least then you're going to go to the nicest house in Bethlehem. No, there's not going to be any room for these folks. He's going to be born in a barn. What? Why would you do that? And this is the note, because Jesus, so, Jesus can, so no one can say that Jesus doesn't understand me. Jesus understands us. Please hear this. Please hear this this Christmas. If there's anyone in the whole universe that gets you, that gets me, it's Jesus. I meet people all the time, and they go, I'm just so angry at God. I don't understand. I lost a loved one, and I don't know why he would allow that person to die that meant the world to me. I lost my job, or I lost my business. I don't know why God would allow that to happen. I don't know why there were certain pains that came into my life. And so people get angry at God, and they turn away from him and say, I won't talk to God now. I'm angry at God. He let these hard things happen. He doesn't understand what it's like to live in my situation. Really? Well, Jesus' life was hard, and he was familiar with suffering. Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. Though he was God, he didn't think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up all of his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being, and when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. The writer of Hebrews, that was Paul in Philippians 2. Here's Hebrews 2. Since Jesus himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we're being tested. This high priest of ours, that mediator, the guy in the middle, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. God doesn't know what it's like. Really? God doesn't know what it's like to have a hard life? How many people you know do you know that were born in a barn? And it goes on from there. But he doesn't know what it's like to be a minority. Really, that's exactly what the Jews were. Well, he doesn't know what it's like to be ostracized from family. He was born in a barn because the family wouldn't take him in. 
He doesn't know what it's like to be betrayed by his friends. Do I got to remind you of that story? He doesn't know what it's like. I was falsely accused. I was arrested wrongly. Yeah, Jesus knows. He knows. Yeah, but he doesn't know the temptations I face. Really? After he hadn't eaten for 40 days, when he was at his weakest point, the devil himself appeared to Jesus to tempt him. He doesn't know temptation. He doesn't know pain. His back was ripped open by the Romans. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be mocked. He knows what it's like to be spit on. He knows what it's like to be crucified. And our Heavenly Father in heaven watched his own son die for a bunch of ungrateful religious hypocrites who were mocking him, telling him, if you're the Son of God, then come off the cross and save us and everybody else. So does Jesus even know what it's like to die? Yeah, he has died. Does our Heavenly Father know what it's like to lose a son? God doesn't know what it's like. I lost one of my children. He doesn't understand. If there's anyone in the whole universe who understands, it's God. It's one thing to lose a loved one to cancer or a car accident. Imagine losing a loved one to people whom you sent to save and they killed him. Now think about Christmas. Dripping with grace. My friends, Christmas time is a time when we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. If anyone in the whole universe understands us, it's God. The writer of Hebrews had it right. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we're being tested. This high priest of ours, he understands all of our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he didn't sin. And so that brings us to the last life application on your outline. We can, all, we can bring all of our problems to Jesus to Jesus. No matter who we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what we've done, please hear the good news. This is why angels were singing. Jesus himself said, come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, can I beg you to come to Jesus if you've been far away? If you think he's given up on you, you are so wrong. If you think that he doesn't understand you, you are so wrong. And for all of us, I want this to be a reminder that this is why we need to tell our friends about Christ. And please don't tell me, well, John, I can't tell people about Christ because I'm not perfect. I mean, I, you know, who am I to go tell somebody they need Jesus? I'm a sinner like everybody else. Exactly. I mean, that's why we even have an invitation for a candlelight service. We have them coming up on the 24th. There's one more installment to all this. On the 24th, on Christmas Eve, we have this great service where we sing Christmas carols. And just for a few minutes, I get to talk about how Jesus, the light of the world, came into a dark world to get rid of darkness. And we even let kids play with fire. It's amazing. We're going to do that this Christmas Eve. And there are so many people that need to be reminded that God loves them. I'm going to tell them. I've been praying about this for weeks already. I promise you we'll tell them. I promise you we'll tell them. Don't miss this opportunity. If you know somebody who's angry at God or far from God, who thinks God doesn't get them, oh my goodness, they got them all wrong. And Christmas was handled in a way to remind us, 
if that's what you're thinking, that I'm this God way off in space somewhere and I don't care what y'all are doing, I love you so much, I'm coming to help you. I'm coming to save you. And I love every one of you, not just the elite, not the most beautiful, not the most powerful, not the most wealthy, all y'all. That's my translation right there, all y'all. And that's why he came into the world. This message is dripping with grace, undeserved kindness. And if there's anyone in the whole universe who gets where you're coming from this Christmas, it's Jesus. He's been there. He has literally been here. Now, one last thing that's not in your outline, I just want to throw this in here because it's something that, I don't know, as I was praying through that this morning, there's one more thought that came to mind. There's an urgency to this also. Because when I talk about all the exciting plans for 2016, what if God's timing is different, that's all true. But do you know that for some of us, we need to make a decision right now because we messed up a lot in 2015. And we've even had friends warn us. God sometimes sends a cousin or a friend or a spouse or a coworker, and they pull you aside and say, hey, John, um, I've got to talk to you about this. This isn't good. And it's God's grace again to us. He's warning us. And we have an opportunity to turn. And if you're there this Christmas and you realize that God understands you and he's come after you and he's been warning you, this is the time to respond and repent and turn to him and say, God, thank you for warning me. I want to turn. Because I want to tell you something else that I've observed. I've been in ministry for a number of years now. And one of the things that breaks my heart is I'll meet people one Christmas and they'll be a little ways away from God, and we'll talk, and they go, yeah, 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 this next year I'm going to get some things right, but then they don't do it. A few years later, I talk to them again, and they've gotten farther off course. Hey, you need to really turn. This is getting serious now. It's about to destroy your marriage, or you could lose your job, or this could just take your life if it's an addiction that's out of control. Yeah, 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 and they don't do anything about it, and then I meet them again over here, and many times they'll come and talk to me one last time before they dissolve the marriage, before they lose the job, or before something catastrophic happens. And I want to tell us this. If God has spoken to you, please hear me. If God has spoken to you this last year, that you need to turn, you need to repent, you need to say you're sorry, you need to get serious about him, do it now. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And when that message came to you, God was being kind to you. Because if you keep drifting farther and farther off, I hate to tell you this, I meet people when they get here, when they get 5, 10, 15 years down the road, many times their heart is so hardened now they won't come back. Hear me. Please hear me. If God is calling to you, repent now. This is the time. This Christmas. Don't put it off. God loves you. He gets you. And if he's been reaching out to you, it's because he's warning you. He wants you to turn now. The longer we wait, the greater the pain and the harder it is to come back. The devil will see to that. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you for Christmas time. I thank you that it's a message just dripping with grace. Why in the world do you choose Bethlehem, an insignificant little town? Even in prophecy, it was called an insignificant little town. Because, Lord, you used to love, you use, you love to use insignificant places and ordinary people to accomplish your tasks. And we are exactly those people, ordinary people from insignificant places. And we're grateful that we can be involved in your plan. 
And God, I thank you that you reach out to us, that you sent angels to announce Christ's birth, that you've sent other people in our lives to remind us that we're drifting off course and there's things wrong in our lives and we need to repent and turn around. I thank you that you are still reaching out to us, even though we don't deserve it. I thank you that you are still seeking us. And I pray that we'll respond. And, oh God, I pray that we will take down all the defenses against you. Say, you don't understand me. You don't know how hard my life is. You know exactly how hard it is. And you've been through every temptation, more temptation than we would ever face. And you didn't give in. And you said you'll give us that same strength if if we'll come to you. So, God, I pray that we will surrender our lives to you today. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray these things this Christmas. Amen.